Luke chapter 20, verse 20. As we're on our home stretch in our study of Luke, believe it or not, Jesus is now, he's entered into Jerusalem for the final time during his earthly ministry. He's about to die. He's a couple days away from dying, several months for us. Um, as we're going through, we'll probably be heading, finishing it before summer. Um, but chapter 19 through 23 recounts the event of Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, up until his resurrection in chapter 24. And so that's kind of the section we're in right now. He's in Jerusalem, and this is the final couple days here we're going over. Jews from all over the place have now converged upon um, have converged upon Jerusalem for the Passover. There's two million people in the city. Jesus entered into Jerusalem on a Monday in what we call that triumphal entry. Um, and he openly declared himself basically to be the Messiah, the promised one. And many people, knowing their scriptures, were looking at the part where he would come and he would take over Rome, basically. That was their expectation of him, that he was going to be their political savior and set up that messianic kingdom established there in Jerusalem and rule forever and reign forever. And so they had expectations of Jesus. Instead, on the next morning, on that next Tuesday morning, Jesus goes into the temple, as we already read last week, and he cleansed the temple grounds from all the money changers and those who are buying and selling, declaring that the temple was to be a house of prayer, but they had made it a den of robbers. And so Jesus was zealous to restore correct and right worship into the temple of God, and he did it. Uh, by driving out those money changers. And after cleansing the temple, Jesus proceeds to teach the people and heal people. In other Gospels, it talks about that. And he tells them a parable that spoke about how God was going to bring judgment upon all of Israel and especially its leaders and would give that spiritual stewardship that was once given towards the religious leaders in Israel to others. And I believe those others are speaking about the disciples and what they would call apostolic delegates, those who would take over after them, and that those people would go on and bring forth the fruit that God desired in the hearts and the lives of the people of God. But after he cleansed the temple, he said that he would bring judgment upon them because they rejected the Son. And that's what that parable was about, that they had rejected all the... uh, prophets that were sent to them. They had either killed them or mistreated them or whatever it might be. And at the very end, the the, the, uh, parable goes, well, certainly I'll send my son and they'll listen to him. No, they did not. They killed him because they wanted what was his. They were acting like owners, not stewards. And in two days' time from this story, the Messiah would be crucified He would be rejected. The Son of God would be killed by these men who hated him. And so hatred of the religious leaders is coming to its zenith now. And we left off in verse 19 last week where it says the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately after he told that parable, right? Because they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. And that is always calculated in the minds of the Pharisees. They always have that fear of the people. They want what they want, 
but they also want their power and their position and their authority. And if they upset the people, then they can't have both. And so there has to be a way of getting what they want. And that's what these chapters are about. Verse 20, keeping a close watch on him, that is, on Jesus, they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and the authority of the governor. Over and over, the Pharisees had been opposing Jesus, seeking to trap him. That's what they wanted, to to trap Jesus, to get him to say something dumb, to make him tweet something foolish so they could take advantage of it and, and play the public against him or play the government against him. Back in Luke 6, 7, it says the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, and so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. In Luke eleven fifty three through 54, at a dinner hosted by a Pharisee, it says that when Jesus went outside, remember he had that really awkward dinner? Anytime you have dinner with Jesus, it's usually awkward. If you're a Pharisee, it's not going to go well for you. Jesus went outside. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. This is what they were constantly doing. John tells us in chapter 11 of how the leadership was plotting and after Jesus had resurrected Lazarus, just, uh, Lazarus just, just on the other side of Bethany, right outside of Jerusalem there, uh, some of them left that place, went down into the city and told the Pharisees, about what had happened, what Jesus had done. In verse 47 begins in John chapter 11. I'm going to read a section here. It says, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. That was all the groups of all the religious leaders together. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here's this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Again, that ownership, not stewardship. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. And he did not say this on his own, but as a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but for also uh, for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and to make them one. And so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. They wanted to kill him because it was either them or Jesus in their minds. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country uh, to Jerusalem for the ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. And they kept looking for Jesus As they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. They were gunning for him. So they wanted to arrest Jesus with the intention of eliminating him, of killing him. But they feared the people's reaction, and so they had to find a way to arrest him and blame it on Rome or to get him to be opposed to Rome so that the people's public opinion would sway. It's all politics. 
So they spent, sent these spies into the crowd where Jesus was teaching, and they pretended to be sincere. Uh, they, but their aim was to entrap Jesus, saying something against Rome so he could be arrested and handed over to Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of Rome. This is important because the Jews did not have the um, ability to execute people. They didn't have the ability for capital punishment. The scepter had departed from them, so to speak. They couldn't self-rule in that manner. Only the Roman government could do that, although they happened to stone people all the time. But my guess is this is a high-profile case, and it would go up the ladder quickly. And so therefore, they had to play politics. They couldn't execute on their own. Verse 21 says that the spies question him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Spies, full of lies, espionage. (laughs) They didn't mean a word of what they said. Verse 20 says that these spies pretended to be sincere. That's not the correct word translated there. Sometimes, sometimes, uh, like in the NIV, they'll put a word in, um, a word in because it makes more sense and it relays the idea of the real word. The real word is righteous. They pretended to be righteous. That's the word there. They trend, pretended to be, um, agree basically with Christ and what he taught and what he believed. They're like, oh yeah, we're just like everybody else. We believe what you say. We, we believe that you're the, the Messiah. We, we know that you're from God. We, you know, they're pretending, they're playing the part, they're the hypocrites purposefully, they're pretending to be someone and they're not, they're pretending to be righteous. And they were saying that since you are impartial, since you don't fear the government, wink, wink, since you don't fear the people, then tell us what you really think on this subject. Tell us the truth. Verse 22, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Boy, that's not a hot button, especially during that time. Very clever, very clever. Now, the tax that they're talking about is called the imperial tax or the poll tax, according to Matthew twenty-two seventeen, the same account here. And that tax would be levied by Rome on people who were not Roman citizens. So it was a special tax on all the others, you know, the ones they had conquered, the ones who were not Roman citizens, they got this special tax. So as you can imagine, the Jews who were listening were no fans of the Romans. How many of you enjoy extra taxes? Especially special taxes because of a certain status you have or whatever it might be. And so they did not like being the subjects of Rome, let alone being isolated and told you had to pay this special tax. The Jews just hated it. And so the spies were hoping that Jesus would answer, his answer would cause him to either side with Rome or the people, thereby causing a huge problem for Jesus either way. If Jesus says the people should pay this tax, Jesus would have sided with Rome. And in the eyes of people, what would that do? It would decrease the people's adoration of him and his ground support would dwindle and it would revert back to the Pharisees. That's what they wanted. If Jesus tells the people not to pay the tax, then he'd be revolting against Rome, and that would cause an uprising, and Rome would come, and they would take care of him. And who gets to win? The Pharisees. And so that was 
that catch to 22 that it seems like they were putting Jesus in. Very clever. Which leads us to the verse 23. He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar, they replied. And here's, we have, I think, do we have that picture of the denarius? There it is. Wonderful nose and beautiful hair, all those things. The denarius was the Roman currency of the day and was the, was the wage of, of what well, was a day's wage for a Roman soldier. They got paid one of those per day. And one of the main reasons the Jews hated the imperial tax, also called the poll tax, was because of that image of Caesar on the, on, on the coin. Tiberius was at that time, was on one side of it, and on the other, Caesar, you can see him seated there in his priestly robes with the word priest on it. The whole coin was a graven image in their eyes. And Caesar had elevated himself to the level of deity. That's why they, you saw in the, um, you know, in the places that if Christians didn't declare that Caesar was Lord, they would be killed. Lord meaning Lord above all gods. You can have your little deities, but Caesar is above and beyond all of these things. So Caesar had elevated himself to that deity, and so paying taxes to Caesar would be a form of unlawful worship, tithing to him, basically. It's kind of what was going on in their mind. And, and so it was a gross idolatry and in violation of Exodus 24. You know, don't have any other graven images. And so at the root of this question by the spies was not only a political trap, but a theological one. Jesus, do you endorse the worship of Caesar by paying taxes to him? It was getting deep. I think that question is very relevant to many of us today who follow Christ. You know, who are convicted about the character of the people uh, who are collecting perhaps the taxes for us and what they are spending it on and how all that lines up with our faith. And some feel that maybe pa- paying taxes violates their conscience. You see, you see this, this, this happening within people today. These are relevant issues. And so Jesus says in verse 24, show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. Now let me translate that for you. Pull out a dollar. Whose picture is on that dollar? George? The George? Washington? Translation would be, give the Washington what is Washington's. Give the God what is God's. Verse 25, and he said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's. Give to Washington what is Washington and give to what God, uh, God what is God's. Show me a verse in Scripture where Jesus or Paul or the apostles or any writer in the New Testament says, despise authority, don't pay taxes and revolt. I think it's, we got to be careful that we are Christians before, you know, above and beyond being Americans. I love our country. But I am a Christian. I am not a citizen of this world anymore. I've been bought with a price. And my time here is to represent my King, my Lord. Your time here as His representatives are to represent your King and your Lord 
in wherever God has you, in whatever color skin you are, whatever place you've been in. But for us to say we're not going to do this in a revolt against the government is not in Scripture. I don't see it. Now, I know this brings up a very deep discussion, which I think there's a lot of great um, dialogues. At what point does the government forfeit that situation? And we can go, I'm not going to discuss that here right now. Um, I would love to talk to you about that. But in general, the teaching of the New Testament is you're going to live in an unjust world. You're going to live in an unjust system. You're going to live in an unjust marriage. You're going to be a slave. You're going to be all these types of things. How do you exalt Christ in this world now? Because that's what it's all about, church. We exist to glorify God by loving and obeying Jesus Christ. Amen? So what do we do as Christians when our government in many ways seems to violate Christ's teachings? Is paying taxes when they're used for things that are contrary, obviously contrary to the Word of God, in some cases somehow going against God? How many of you struggle with that? Anyone? I do. Huge time. Again, I don't find any New Testament verses that say don't pay your taxes and start a revolution. Don't see it. But I do find verses like 1 Peter chapter 2, 13 through 17, which says, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as supreme authority, or to governors, or uh, sorry, who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you shall silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves, His servants. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the what? Emperor. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had trouble with our emperors. But what does Paul say? Slander them? Oh, he says to pray for them and to honor them. Why? For God's glory, not for my comfort. Romans 13, 1 through 2, and I don't, I'm not going to go through the whole thing here, but it says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except for that which God has established. That is a hard teaching, but it's the truth. There is no power that is in position that God has not allowed to be. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment upon themselves. This is Paul's teaching under an oppressive Roman government where you didn't have civil rights, you didn't have all these things, you were slaves, and that's just the way it was. A few verses later in Romans 13, 5 through 7, therefore it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes to the authorities, uh, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Government is God's idea. Do we know that? God instituted basically three areas of government, basically. Um, 
You've got government, you've got the family, you've got the church. All his ideas, different realms, different responsibilities. This is give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. These are the New Testament teachings coming up on tax day here. It doesn't say pay unnecessary taxes. It says if you owe them, right, pay them. And there's more. And so submission to government is not turning your back on God because the government is God-ordained. Now, this does not mean what the government does is God-ordained. And those who are in a government position will give an account to God for what they've done and how they've governed. Similar to children and parents. And I have to add that God's ordained role of the government, if you could sum it up into the most simplest thing, is to protect the innocent and punish those who do evil. That's supposed to be what it is. Protect the innocent and punish those who do evil. That's what God's design for government is. At its core and its essence, Romans 13. Now, we know there's corruption, just as there was in Jesus' day. And if I were of a different persuasion, I would work you all up right now to go revolt against them. Doesn't that just sound like what the world wants you to do? But what does Jesus say? Pray for them. Submit to them. Let your life be a witness to them. Caesar was doing things with the taxes collected that were totally sinful, just as our government is. But to think that because of those things, we're now exempt for paying taxes is not biblical thinking. The one who makes those decisions will give an account to Christ, but we are not exempt from doing what God says, what Jesus says here. So Jesus says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. You're not violating God by paying taxes even when those who are using them are using them for evil things. John Piper says it's kind of like a janitor in a corporation. I know this falls apart, but a janitor in a corporation with thousands of employees, the CEO gets in trouble with embezzlement. The janitor who is contributing into it is not going to be held responsible for what the CEO did. He'll be affected by it, but he's not responsible for it. The closer you are to that decision-making process, the closer you are. And yes, we have an elective form of government. And yes, get out there and vote and, and do whatever the Holy Spirit puts in your heart. I'm not saying these things we shouldn't, but there shouldn't be a spirit of rebellion in it. There shouldn't be a spirit, but it should be an opportunity of whatever we do to honor Christ and proclaim his gospel in our actions and our deeds. Even when wrong is done to us, how do we respond? What difference are we than the world? Amen? Hard teachings. We are to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But more importantly, here it says, Jesus says, give back to God what is what? God's. Caesar's image was stamped on that money. Washington's is stamped on that money. Whose image are you made in? What were you minted in? Whose image were you minted in? God's. Render to God what is God's. What is God's? I am. Render myself back to him. What does that mean? 
I think we need to give him all that he is owed, our very being, our lives, our worship, our praise, our hearts, our affection, our obedience, all those things and beyond. Verse 26. And they were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. And astonished by his answers, they became silent. You know, they thought they got him between Rome and the people. They thought it got him in a trap, but Jesus didn't have to choose Rome. He didn't have to choose the people. He chose God. That's what we choose, brothers and sisters. Even when it's detrimental to us, we choose the Lord. Verse 27, some of the Sadducees who said there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Up until this point, we've been hearing mostly about the Pharisees who were the legalists, uh, the religious ruling class of Israel, and they numbered about 6,000, but they only made up a, a minority of the religious political makeup of the Jewish leadership. Now this other group is introduced, which was even a minority of that one. They were the Sadducees, and verse 27 identifies the Sadducees as those who say there is no resurrection, and that is why they are Sadducee. <laughs> Same joke, new crowd. <laughs> Just going to keep on doing that one. Yep. Listen to John MacArthur's notes on the Sadducees. The Sadducees were known for their denial of supernatural things. They denied the resurrection of the dead, Matthew 22, 23, and the existence of angels, Acts 23, 8, and the Spirit. Unlike the Pharisees, they rejected human tradition and scorned legalism. They accepted only the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, as authoritative, They tended to be wealthy, aristocratic members of the priestly tribe, and in the days of Herod, their sect controlled the temple. The Pharisees focused on rituals, while the Sadducees were more rationalists. They were more reasoning. Sadducees were liberals. Pharisees were separatists. Sadducees were uh, compromisers and political opportunists, yet both the Pharisees and the Sadducees united together in their opposition of Christ. And so the Sadducees who denied the resurrection came to Jesus with a question about the resurrection to trap him, obviously. Verse 28, teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. And many of you are going, what in the world is that? That is a weird thing. Amen. The Bible's got some weird stuff in it. Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10 is basically is, is, is the verse that Jesus is, uh, the, the Sadducees are referencing there. And so if a man dies without a son, there's no one to carry on the family name. And that was very important in that culture. It's very hard for us to understand, but that was very important in their culture. And so his brother was to marry his wife and give him a son. That was the purpose. The purpose would be in verse 6 of Deuteronomy 25. It says, The first son shall bear a son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Okay? Now, if you're familiar with the story of Ruth, remember she goes into a faraway land. She marries a Jew. Well, she's in a faraway land. Uh, she's, a, she's a Moabitess, right? And she marries a Jew, and he dies. She comes back with her mother-in-law, Naomi, back into Jerusalem. Well, it just so happens she came along the field belonging to Boaz, and she didn't know at the time, but they found out that she was a re- he was a relative of her husband. And so, you know, the story goes that they were going to be together, but he couldn't 
fulfill that. He couldn't get married to her until the oldest in line decided you know, that he didn't want to marry her because that's the way it worked. And so what happened is, is like, they went to him. The old brother's like, no way, I don't want to do this. And they go, okay, come to the city gate. Here's your sandal of shame, and we're going to spit on you. And the whole thing happened. Sorry, just a little cultural stuff there. <laughs> it's funny. You got to read it. I mean, serious stuff, though, right? And, and so you find that Boaz, Boaz, Boaz ended up being Ruth's goel. Her kinsman redeemed her. He redeemed her from the shame. And that's a picture of Christ. Very interesting. The one who redeemed her from the shame of not having that firstborn son to carry on the name of her dead husband. And by the way, her great, one of her great-great-grandsons was, was David. And one of her great-great-great-great was Jesus. Right? So that's where that story is there. And so the Sadducees give this crazy scenario. Verse 29. There were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second one and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died leaving no children. That's a lot. So seven people married her. They all died. She died. Everybody dies. No kids. Verse 32, finally the woman died too. Then, now then, at the resurrection, whose wife sh- <laughs> will... <laughs> this feels like math problem to me. <laughs> this is the stuff I... This is how I felt when, in math growing up. Now then, at the resurrection, <laughs> whose life will she be? Since the seven were married to her. And here's where you want to plug your ears if you want to continue to believe that your spouse and you are going to be together forever. This is making for a great Valentine's message here. (laughs) Verse 34, Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Now, the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection at all to begin with, and so Jesus basically warns them that, first of all, they're unworthy of the resurrection. He says, those worthy of the resurrection, and that's something as a Bible study student you should hone in on. Am I worthy of the resurrection? What does that mean? And the answer is, no one is worthy of the resurrection except for Jesus Christ, who is worthy of because he's the firstborn, and in him we become worthy. That's a whole other thing. But you need to study that out. Am I worthy? That's a good question. But they didn't believe in the resurrection. And in their unbelief, they thought they could trap Jesus by getting him to admit what they thought was the absurdity of the resurrection. But Jesus shows them their error. Matthew's Gospel in chapter 22, 29, again, the parallel version of this, Jesus says, you are in error because you do not know the Scripture or the power of God. So Jesus is flat out telling them, you don't know your Bible and you have no power. It's flat out. And that was quite a thing to say to the Pharisees, I mean to the Sadducees, because although they denied the supernatural things and all that type of stuff, they didn't follow the interpretations that the um, Pharisees did. The Pharisees, they interpreted it so legalistically that they drew out conclusions that weren't necessarily there in Scripture, Right? Like, in other words, you can't work on the Sabbath, therefore you can't light a fire, therefore you can't get in an elevator and push the button, because if you push the button, it causes a spark, which is lighting a fire. You know, they, they worked it out to the nth degree. The Sadducees said no, and they cut all that stuff out, and they just kept the law. The first five books, they were purists in that way. And so they prided themselves in that. 
They were fastidious in holding to the law of Moses. And Jesus says, for all your knowledge of the first five books, the Bible, you still don't have understanding, you don't have power. And so he plainly tells them that marriage is just for this age. How many of you are married? It's not going to be forever. You think that when you die, then your other person dies, then you're going to go be married in heaven. That is not what happens. The Mormons believe that. That's not what Jesus says. And by the way, they also believe you get married and you, if you're married in the temple, you get married and you go have your own planet and you have eternal sex and fill that, populate that planet with spirit babies and all that stuff. Um, and that's how we got here, by the way. Um, so, No. Yeah, and Jesus is one of those people. Anyways, I know it gets deeper, but I'm just saying that this we got We got They don't read their scriptures, right? This is what Jesus says. You've got a, a misunderstanding about how things are happening in this age and in the age to come. So Jesus clears it up. That's how we learn, right? Some of us don't know. Thank the Lord that He teaches us. I love that. And so Jesus tells them, marriage is just for now. I know we have songs. I know we have, you know, these things that we're going to be together forever, but it simply isn't true regarding marriage. Again, this is a horrible Valentine's message. <laughs> but it's the, the purpose of marriage in God's plan is for this age. Again, in verse 35, it says, But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Why? Verse 36, And they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. One of the main purposes of marriages in God's design is procreation, having kids. Why? Because people die. And in God's plan, there needs to be people. It can't get any more simple than that. And Jesus says, at the resurrection, there isn't going to be any more death. And those who are resurrected to everlasting life will be like the angels in that they don't die and they don't procreate. Now, it doesn't say they will become as angels. It says they become like the angels. Okay? Very important. We're not going to get wings and a harp and all that stuff and... We're, not, we're going to become as angels. There's a higher order. You can read about that in Hebrews. But they are children of, they are God's children, Jesus says, since they are children of the resurrection. The idea is that we are no longer children of, our, of parents in this life-death cycle. We're now children of God, children of the resurrection. We have life in our DNA. We're not inheriting death. And because the Pharisees only held to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, also called the law or the law of Moses, Jesus demonstrates that there is life after death from the law, Exodus 3. In closing, verse 37 through 40, it says, But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. For to him, all are alive. In that passage, Jesus quotes Exodus 3. It says, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am their God right now. But they had already passed away. So Jesus uses the scripture to point out that God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, for to him all are alive. There is life after death. 
There will be a resurrection, so Jesus again reverses the trap on them. This time, the Sadducees are caught in. Verse 39 says, Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher, and no one dared, ask, dared to ask him any more questions. Finally, now they're just going to kill him. They can't trap him. He's too wise, too powerful. They're going to kill him. And the teachers were so amazed. The Sadducees lost the courage to question him. That's what the translation is. They lost the courage. I'm going to look like a fool if I do this again. The wisdom that Jesus responded with was unmatched. Jesus overcame their traps. Jesus overcame their murderous plot through the resurrection. And Jesus promises eternal life to all who would believe upon his death for their sins and his resurrection for their new life. He overcame. He's our king. He's our Lord. And he sits enthroned right now. And the moment your heart gives out, the moment you're done, the moment we're done, he's still your God. He is God of the living And if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will not experience the second death, that eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. But you have been saved and you have gone from this life to new life. You have been transferred from citizenship in this world, which is a ship going down into the kingdom that will never end. Amen. Where is your citizenship? Where is your hope? I pray that it's with the Lord Jesus. If you haven't given your heart to Jesus, today is the day. Surrender your heart. Call out to him. Give your life to him. Come up and talk to me afterwards, whatever it takes. Let's pray. Lord God, we just come before you and we thank you that you have overcome all of the schemes of the wicked one that you are King of kings, you are Lord of lords, that you have a kingdom that will never end, and we are now your children, children of God, children of the resurrection. And we ask that by your grace, Lord, many more would come to know you through us, through our lives, and how we suffer well. And we ask this all in the name of Jesus, amen.